Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, whenever you're listening, and welcome to Tri-State at the Plate. I'm your host, Andy Burdick, joined today by the big red machine himself, Bob Finkbeiner. Bob, how are you this morning? I'm fantastic. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. I think it's, I think, I feel it's safe to say now that the weather is broken, but you never know in northwestern Pennsylvania. We hope so. I said that a few weeks ago, and then we had a blizzard the following weekend, so I try to be uh, cautiously optimistic, but it it would appear that the weather has finally broken for the baseball season now. So now that we have uh, things completely underway with this baseball season, we're now a couple weeks into the season, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Pirates. We're going to talk a little bit about the Tribe. We'll take a look at the Seawolf season so far. But before we do all that, Bob, I want to talk about something that happened Tuesday night that was kind of crazy. Now, I, full disclosure, uh, I, these games on the West Coast, I'm officially an old person. And I will try my best to stay awake for a game on the West Coast. But any games that start after the traditional 7 o'clock East Coast slot, there's a good chance that I'm going to fall asleep during it. Uh, That was the case Tuesday night, so I had to watch this event via replay the next day. But it was pretty epic nonetheless. And what I'm talking about is, of course, Mark McGuire taking over as manager for the first time in his career. And you know why this happened, Bob? I do know why. (laughs) It was very entertaining. It was. Because Padres manager Andy Green was ejected for arguing a reversal of a reversal (laughs) of a bot call. Now, I don't know. And, you know, I'm not I'm not sure, but I'm I'm pretty sure about this. Uh, You can't argue a bot call at all, right? Like you'll automatically get tossed if you go out and complain about a bot call. That's how I understand it. Isn't it? Because I think I remember Joe Madden. (laughs) <laughs> I think Joe Madden one year was pretty upset about a bot call in Tampa. And so he couldn't go out to complain about it. So instead what he did was he went out to the mound and had a meeting. Yes. And just kept talking and talking. Do you remember this? I remember that. So he kept talking and talking and made the umpire come out to tell him to break up the meeting. And when the umpire was walking out, then he started talking really obnoxiously loud about <laughs> how the bot call was a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> Which I I respect that on a level that I don't think people will ever understand. That's the greatest passive aggressive. <laughs> it's very creative. <laughs> That's his approach. That sounds like something I would do every day of my life if I had a chance to just passive aggressively complain to the umpire <laughs> about all the calls that they're making. So uh, so yeah, Andy Green though, and and maybe I don't know if you saw this situation live. Maybe you can better explain it. Uh, you know the context that it happened in, but. Basically, it was <clears throat> Kutch was on third and was leading off. And he saw, I think it was Colin Ray. Was that the starter? Uh, was on the mound. Was it Colin Ray? Yes, I, I believe so. One of the Padres starters uh, was on the mound. Started his delivery from the windup. And when Kutch saw that, right. he broke from, from third like he was going to try and steal home. And that forced the pitcher to speed up his delivery. <clears throat> and so he sped up his delivery. Kutch was just bluffing. He just wanted to try and get the guy out of his rhythm. And after the play, they called a Bach because the guy sped up his delivery. Now, there's nothing wrong with speeding up your windup, right? Right. And what really happened was, and it's, you have to well, go back and watch the replay, as, as Ray, from the windup, you know, you can make that move backwards or to the side. And you move your foot to the front of the rubber, 
He moved his foot to find a rubber, and then when he saw Koch going, he picked up his foot and put back down again. Okay. So it's like an interruption in his normal delivery. And that's, and, why the, and that's why the block was called. And so that was what they called the block on, not necessarily the fact that he sped right. up his delivery. Okay. Yep. So they initially they called it a Bach, correct? Correct. And so they awarded Kutch home. And then Marte third base, yep. And Marte third. And then the whole gang got together. All the umpires got together, discussed, and then came to the conclusion that they had, in fact made a mistake on this bot call. So that that was the next thing that happened, right? Correct. So, like, Andy Green comes out, he pleads his case, they all get together, and then they realize, or they come to the conclusion that they feel like they've they've made a mistake. So they reverse the bot call. They yes, send... and that was a calm Andy Green at that moment. Yes, Andy, <laughs> Andy Green <laughs> still a normal human being at this point send it they send everybody back this of course does not make clint hurdle happy so clint hurdle comes out with a with a little bit of fire and he's pleading his case and that was actually the uh, the picture on the the front of the video was hurdle with this big wad of gum mm-hmm. uh, in the side of his mouth with his aunt, his hands outstretched in front of him uh you know palms up to the heavens pleading his case about what's what's going on. So then the umpires get back together again. And they come to the conclusion that they need to reverse the reversal of the bot call that they've made. <laughs> Which that was a that was a first. I I can't say I've ever seen anything quite like that before. Now at this point Andy Green loses his mind. Like you you have to watch the video to see him it's like a Lou Pinella. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Yep. It's he is no longer a mild-mannered manager. He's he's turned into the incredible hulk of managers. Like loses his mind. It's <laughs> it's pretty amazing to see. You you should go watch the video of Andy Green losing his mind on this reversal of a reversal if you have not seen it. Um Yeah, he he goes absolutely ballistic. Uh so this of course, results in him being ejected for multiple reasons. <laughs> uh, one of which is arguing a Bach call, I would assume. Another of which is uh, looking like a psychopath on a baseball field. <laughs> and this led to Mark McGuire taking over as manager for the first time in his career. <laughs> and that's how we get that's how we get to Mark McGuire managing his first game. So good for you, Mark McGuire. <laughs> Um, Green after the game though his his comments were pretty funny. Green's uh, quote about the game: "I was genuinely outraged at the chain of events that occurred as they occurred." <laughs> that that to me is hilarious in the context of a baseball game. He was well, genuine genuinely outraged. Did you also see when you watched the replay of it? So after the reversal, the reversal. And, you know, McCutcheon run counts, and Marte's on third base. Did you see Marte nearly do the same thing as McCutcheon did? Uh, no, did he do that? Yeah, and it was kind of <laughs> funny because Ray again was in the windup, and he had to step off and think, oh, gosh, go back to the stretch. <laughs> <coughs> That's kind of funny. He was obviously laughing, looking at the bug out like, it could have happened twice. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> 
Yeah. So that was uh, that was definitely interesting. If you haven't seen that yet, go watch Andy Green get ejected from the Tuesday night Padres Pirates uh, game. Pretty amusing. All right, you ready to talk about some uh, more current pirate stuff, though, Bob? I am. I think I think we're ready to do this now. We've talked enough about Andy Green and Mark McGuire. So Pittsburgh, their last ten games, four and six, which is actually a, a little improvement. Uh, when you consider that, as I was taking notes for uh, Wednesday, they were uh, three and seven. So I guess they're making uh, some marginal steps. Uh, they're currently nine and eight. They're four games back of the Cubs, which is, as a Pirates fan, kind of frustrating to see already that we're already four games back of the Cubs. It's like we can get ahead of the Cardinals, and now the Cubs are just here to haunt us. It's like they're taunting us from in front of us, Bob. That's kind of what it it's like. And this happens, like, every year for the last couple years. The Pirates have started off slow. They get behind at the beginning of the season, and then they can't catch up. You know, like, last year they had that slow start. They ended up winning 98 games last year. They needed to win, like, 101 games in order to win that division. Had they won maybe a few more games at the beginning of the season, they might have been a 101-win team. Uh, but, you know, they have these slow starts at the beginning of the year, and it just it it kills them at the end of the season <laughs> when when they're trying to make up like five or six games in the last month. So it's kind of, as a Pirates fan, frustrating to see that they're already four games back at the Cubs. And that's with the Cubs missing Kyle Schwarber. Ah, it's just, that's it's, really oh, it's scary, so tough. Man. It's so tough. And, you know, and then Jake Arrieta goes out and throws another no-hitter for the Cubs. Like, Amazing. Man, Pittsburgh just cannot catch a break in that division. It's a great time to be a Pirates fan, but it is a tough time to be a Pirates baseball club because, man, everybody's pretty good in that division. Well, three teams are pretty good in that division. Now, there's some positive stuff to take away from the beginning of this season, and that is currently that Pittsburgh has the best on-base percentage in all of baseball. Do you know what that on-base percentage is, Bob? <clears throat> I from your nose, I do, but... <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. The Pirates on-base percentage, 382. Like, that's phenomenal. A team on base percentage, 382. That's great. The second best team in baseball is the Cubs currently, and their on base percentage is 352. Like, that's. Like, Pittsburgh is doing exactly what they wanted to do when they signed John Jaso, when they traded Neil Walker. You know, when they, when they made all of these moves to kind of change their roster construction, they're getting guys on base at a ridiculous clip. They're, you know, they've they've shuffled their lineups. They they're hitting Jaso leadoff. You know, they finally found that guy that they can put ahead of Kutch. You know, Kutch is hitting in the two hole. They're getting on base ridiculous amount of time, and up until and up until Wednesday, it actually really hadn't paid off as they were like 11th in the league in runs. Uh, the last couple games, they've actually put uh, quite a few more runs on the board. I think last night, what was it, nine to eight, um, or eight to seven. You know, like they they they've put quite a few runs on the board the last two games, and they've actually moved up to fifth uh, in baseball in runs. They have 82 runs scored this season. Um, so, and I, I think that kind of what that goes to show is, you know, they were getting guys on base and they weren't scoring runs. And we're going to talk a little bit about how Kutch was frustrated about um, hitting with runners in scoring position in a, a little bit, but you know, they they weren't scoring as many runs as they thought they should be for the amount of people that they were getting on base. 
but I think it goes to show that if you continually just get guys on base, eventually some of those hits are going to fall in and you're going to drive those guys in. Um, and that's kind of what you've seen over the last couple nights when the Pirates are putting up um, all these crooked numbers. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I mean, offensively, I think everything is going well for the Pirates. I, I really do. You know, like I said, that ridiculous on-base percentage, they're hitting 295 as a team. So they have the best on-base percentage and the best batting average in baseball um, team-wise. The problem with the Pirates to, to start off this season, and I think we'll kind of talk about this a little bit with the Indians too when we get to them, but the Pirates team ERA is currently 4.25, which is 20th in the league. And the frightening thing about that is that their FIP is 4.70. Ooh. Yeah, so theoretically, like it could... Theoretically, it could be worse, which is kind of like a scary thing to think about. You know, they've they've had a lot of shaky starts. They've had a lot of issues with their bullpen. Their bullpen's currently allowing 4.38 runs per game. That's the 13th worst in baseball. Last year, Pittsburgh's bullpen was way below the league average. The league average of runs per game uh, allowed by bullpens last year was 4.25. And last year, the Pirates' bullpen... Uh, surrendered 3.68 runs per game. I mean, it was well below the league average. You know, this year they're well above the league average as far as runs allowed. So it's it's made kind of Pirates games tough to watch because you're getting late into these games and then you're seeing implosions that traditionally you're not used to seeing. Now, Melanson's been locked down so far this season. After last night, he's thrown seven and two-thirds innings. He's only given up one earned run. Neftali Feliz has been good. He's thrown eight and a third innings, only given up two earned runs, and he struck out 11. But then you get to some guys that you're kind of like, like Tony Watson. You're used to Tony Watson and Mark Melanson being automatic at the back end of that bullpen. Well, Watson's thrown eight innings so far this year. He's given up four earned runs, and he only has five strikeouts. Kyle Lobstein, uh, former Erie Seawolf Kyle Lobstein, has, has thrown 12 innings. So, you know, he's kind of coming in as like that, um, that firefighter kind of guy where they're like, we need to stop this now. We need someone to eat up some innings. Lobstein's thrown 12 innings. He's given up seven earned runs. Um, you know, fireball relief pitcher Archimedes Camonero's thrown eight innings. He's given up six earned runs. Um, and Corey Lubke, you know, who's, who's kind of the same way, three and a third innings, three earned runs. So our bullpen's having some struggles that, I don't know if it's maybe early on in the season and maybe things are normalized, or I don't know if it's, you know, when you're looking at a guy like Camonero, obviously he has the talent to to be an amazing relief pitcher. There's no way he should have six earned runs in eight innings already. But it's it's made games tough to watch when you're watching the bullpen go out there and just kind of implode at the the end of games. So it's something to kind of keep an eye on, I think, over the next couple weeks is... How does Pittsburgh's bullpen respond to this start? Do you see them starting to improve? Because if not, like it's going to be a long season in Pittsburgh watching them kind of, you know, continue to blow games at the back end like that. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is Andrew McCutcheon, who, and this was going into Wednesday's game. So some things have probably changed over the last couple of days, but going into Wednesday's game, Kutch was one for 17 with one RBI when there were runners in scoring position. And that was kind of highlighting, I think, the offensive struggles as far as not being able to put up, I guess, the amount of runs relative to the 
the base runners. Pittsburgh was stranding like platoons of runners on games. I mean, it would be like, <laughs> like 20 guys left on base. It would kind of remind you like the 97 Pirates with Jason Kendall. You get to the end of the game and the left on base at the end of the game would be like 38 runners. <laughs> we loaded the bases every inning and couldn't drive anyone in. Like it was, it, it I get obviously being a little hyperbolic, it, it, you know, it wasn't quite that bad, but you know, one for 17 with one RBI uh, going into Wednesday's game. Adam Barry talked to Kutch and Kutch said, it's a game. You're going to have your off days on days, good at bats, bad at bats. Um, which is, a, I, I think, a well-balanced baseball approach. I think Kutch realized, you know, this this stuff has to normalize. It's, you know, he's not going to go, you know, one for 17 all season long in, in all those different stretches. Um, go and, and again, going into Wednesday, um, as a team, the Pirates had more plate appearances with men in scoring position than any other team. They had 201 plate appearances uh, with runners in scoring position going into Wednesday. And they had a 235 average in those situations, uh, which is well below, you know, it's, it's, that's into the bottom half of the, the league at, up until that point. Um, and they, they'd grounded into 11 double plays going into that. Um, now the one thing to consider with Kutch, and I guess it, it kind of makes sense. He'd, uh, he'd had drawn seven walks up until that point with runners in scoring position. So you can look at that and kind of think to yourself, well, Maybe teams just don't want to pitch to Kutch. So was he pressing a little bit? Maybe swinging at pitches that were outside of the strike zone that he normally wouldn't swing at? And maybe that was affecting his batting average, you know, his ability to put, you know, good wood on the ball and drive guys in. Um, you know, like I said, over the last couple games, Pittsburgh's put some runs on the board and and you're starting to see a little more offensive production, which is nice to see with that high on base percentage. So... I guess if you're looking at something offensively, that's kind of what I would be looking at, though, going forward is um, is Kutch getting some good pitches to hit anytime that he has runners on base uh, in front of him. Um, an interesting point, Francisco Cervelli uh, made his first start of the season at first base uh, the other night. Um, Tuesday, Clint Hurdle had hinted that Cervelli could start against left-handed pitching, and Pittsburgh up until that point hadn't faced a lefty all season. The first lefty they faced was when they squared off against uh, Padres starter Drew Pomerantz. And that's amazing. Isn't that kind of crazy? You the went to seeing left-hander, it seems like, every night for <laughs> the season. Yeah, right? And Pittsburgh didn't see one until, like, game 14. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when they faced Pomerantz, though, the first thing that Hurdle did was shift Cervelli over to first base, which was kind of interesting. He, you know, again, I didn't stay awake for the whole game because I can't stay awake at late nights anymore. I'm just, I think I'm preparing myself for fatherhood and I'm just trying to get my sleep in when I can now. <laughs> so the, uh, <laughs> but for the first couple innings, you know, he, he caught all the throws that you would expect a first baseman to catch. He didn't look out of place there. He hadn't started a game at first base in the last couple years. Um, so it was kind of nice to see that he seemed to, to shift over there. Okay. But for that game, they slid Cervelli to first Stewart behind the plate. Um, who is catching Jeff Locke. If you think about how the Pirates roster is constructed, they have Sean Rodriguez, who can play first base. They have Francisco Cervelli, who can play first base. David Freeze, uh, at some point when Gong comes back, is probably going to fit in at first base somehow, you would think, because um, you know he's on that one-year $3 million deal. They're, they're not just going to want to cut him loose. And he's been a fairly productive hitter in their lineup. 
Um, so that that game though, the Pirates uh, bench. So against Drew Pomerantz, the Pirates bench ha- bench had four left-handed hitters. They had Polanco, Jaso, Matt Joyce, and Cole Figueroa all on the bench, all left-handed. So Hurdle was, I guess, trying to maximize his lineup production that game. Pretty hardcore. <laughs> um, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I really didn't like seeing Polanco on the bench against a lefty, unless it was just like a normal day of rest. Like, Polanco's not a guy that you want platooning. You know what I mean? I agree with that. <clears throat> I, I would think you would... And he's had such a strong start to season, too. I would hate to see his bat on the bench. Right. And, I mean, he's not... Like, it's the old adage, you're not going to get better unless you face whatever it is that you need to improve on. Like, Polanco needs to see those lefties, and we need to see him kind of improve against, you know, left-handed pitching. Um, And, you know, he'll either get to a point where he does improve, or he'll get to a point where he's like Pedro Alvarez, and he just doesn't improve, and then you realize... You know, that's the kind of hitter that he is. But Polanco's so young and so talented, I would think you would want him facing left-handed pitching to see whether he can start to make those strides. Now, like I said, I don't know if maybe it was just a regular day of rest. You know, maybe he'd been playing in enough games that Hurdle thought, yeah, we can give him a break, and that makes sense. (coughs) But I definitely think, I, I hope that doesn't become a pattern, seeing Polanco sit against lefties. I think he's too talented to do that. A couple other things to talk about. We have some rehabbing buckos down on the farm. Jared Hughes and Jung Ho Gong, both rehabbing in AAA Indianapolis. Hughes pitched the sixth inning for Indianapolis Wednesday afternoon. He walked the first batter he faced, uh, hit the second batter. So not a uh, not the kind of start that you traditionally want to see. Um, but he, he got a ground ball from the next batter. Uh, and it actually went to uh, Jung Ho Gong to start a double play. Um, so Jared Hughes, it sounds like is kind of back to doing what he does. I really, I don't know how you feel about bullpen construction, but I, I really like guys like Jared Hughes who are those kind of guys that you can count on where, you know, maybe you get into a pinch in like the sixth inning and, you know, you see your starters kind of running out of steam and you suddenly puts runners on first and second. Like Hughes is a guy that can get up, get warm quick, and you can bring him in a game in a situation like that and count on him to get a ground ball. I don't know if Cleveland has a bullpen guy like that, but, you know, Jared Hughes throws that heavy bowling ball kind of sinker, and it's nice to know that you can bring a guy in like that to get that ground ball when you need it. I don't know how you, I don't know how you feel about bullpen construction. Do you like those kind of guys in the bullpen? Yes, I think you have to have those kind of guys in your bullpen too. <clears throat> we get to the Cleveland bullpen. They're just kind of in a, a bit of a rut right now, trying to figure out their identity and who's going to pitch where. But in the past, I mean, Zach McAllister's been used that way sometimes. Uh, until the last few years, Brian Shaw has been setting up Cody Allen, but Brian Shaw's had disastrous start to this season. So <laughs> yeah, he's not started so well. That's a little bit of a worry. Yeah, I think... And you, obviously, you don't want a whole bullpen full of those ground ball guys because especially with relief pitchers, you don't... <laughs> You don't want a whole lot of ground balls at the back end of games where you can kind of get bled to death. But, you know, like I said, in, in the right situation, Jared Hughes is an amazing guy to have in your bullpen. So I'll be happy to see him back in the Pirates bullpen just because I think it gives their their bullpen a little more flexibility and, and it, it can really help out their starters when they need it. 
Um, I guess continuing on the uh, AAA track, Josh Bell, the Pirates' uh, top-hitting prospect mm-hmm. at first base, hit for the cycle last night in AAA uh, Indianapolis. Cycles like statistical anomalies, but they're still kind of exciting, I guess, when you can get one of everything. It's kind of fun. Like, reminds you when you're a kid and your parents are like, yeah, you can pick one of everything. <laughs> you get one of every hit. I mean, I'd rather he had four home runs, I guess, than four distinctly different kinds of base hits. And the minor league baseball app is great about reminding you of cycle watches. Yes. So I got I that, that. I got that it. little reminder last night. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and he, he got the hardest one. He got the triple on his last at bat, which is kind of cool. You know, the triple's the tough one to collect. So, so would you say that Josh Bell's game was like the utopian baseball player's dream? Get more <laughs> of everything then? Yeah, I think baseball players love the cycle. I do. Yeah. I think it's uh I think it's kind of a cool thing. Josh Bell hit uh two thirty he's hitting two thirty three, three sixty five, four nineteen. Um so he's he's getting on base at a great clip kind of continuing with that Pittsburgh Pirates trend. He has two homers, but the thing that I like the most, he's walking and striking out at the same rate. Um, nine walks to nine strikeouts. So striking out a lot, but he's still getting on base. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about before we move on to the Indians, though. Pirates throwback uniforms, home games on Sunday. I don't know if you saw them. Mm-hmm. Abs- I, amazing. I loved it. I love the We Are Family throwback uniforms. I thought they were phenomenal. Did, have you, did you see them when they wore them last, uh, last Sunday? I did. <clears throat> I was a big fan of them, too. Oh, my God. They're beautiful. Beautiful. The one thing that I'm hoping gets kind of cleared up is the Stargill Stars. You know, we have these amazing uniforms. The black pants, the yellow tops without buttons. You have the striped pillbox hats i mean they're you know they look like the pirates have been just pulled out of 1979 (laughs) but the pillbox hat really isn't complete without the stargill star and i know major league baseball has these rules about how you can't add stuff to uniforms and things like that but i i hope that because it's steeped in tradition that it would be something that baseball would be able to be a little more flexible about like Think about at the end of the game, instead of smashing a shaving cream pie in someone's face, which, number one, could potentially hurt someone, but number two, really isn't, it's kind of played out, it's not that funny anymore. You know, you see it every night, there's a team that's doing it. Imagine if at the end of the game, instead, Andrew McCutcheon could come out and give a Stargell star to the player of the game, or the players of the game, if you wanted. I think that would be a cool, neat thing that would remind Pirates fans of their history, of the last World Series team, of some of the greatest players that have ever put on a Pirates uniform. I think it would be a really good thing for baseball and a positive thing for the Pirates and their fans. Stargell Stars, Bob, what do you think? I'm a fan of it, and I think the Pirates should employ you to market this strategy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would sell that hard. Yeah. I'd wear my pillbox hat everywhere. But really, any time that you can connect the past success of a franchise to current and hopefully future success now, I think it's a win-win. I mean, how great would it be for grandfathers to be able to take their kids to the stadium and say, oh, yeah, these Stargell stars. Like, that was, you know, when I was younger, we got to watch Willie Stargell put stars on guys' hats for good performances. Mm -hmm. 
I think that would be a cool thing. You get to do it 80 times a year or whatever. I think it'd be neat. So I hope it's something that Rob Manfred... I hope it's an executive decision that he makes that turns out uh, as something positive for the Pirates and their franchise. Yeah, let's hope and pray that MLB does not fall down the path of the NBA announcing that they're going to have... Uh, <laughs> advertisers on advertisements their uniforms. on their uniforms. Oh, geez. Yeah. You knew it was coming at some point, though. Uh, I hope not. Please. Come all over the ballpark you want the wall. It's just not in uniforms. Baseball, I feel like, is making enough money that they don't really have to worry about that. So, yeah, I kind of agree. I hope they don't need to do that. Yeah. I don't know. Well, uh, that's it for the Pirates. You ready to talk about the Tribe? Sure. All right. What's going on with the Indians, Bob? Well, we recently welcomed back third base, or sorry, former third baseman, now right fielder Lonnie Chisenhall. He returned to the, the Tribe, and the corresponding move was to send Colin Cowgill out, and he is now down AAA Columbus, which to me is a good thing. Boy, that was... <laughs> My worry, though, is I am skeptical of really how healthy Chisholm Hall still is. Yeah. I've been watching a few of his at-bats, and that wrist injury that he suffered from, I don't, I'm not convinced that it's totally healed. I think it's still bothering him. And I mean, it was early, but his stats so far were kind of wonder... The same. He's only hitting one. Sorry, he's hitting ninety-one. Yeah. Now he's only had eleven play appearances. That can obviously change in a hurry, but something to keep an eye on going forward. More positive news is Michael Brantley is supposed to play today, which would be his first time playing back-to-back games. I think this season, actually. Yeah. Uh, if all goes well, he will be reevaluated uh, tomorrow, Sunday. And if it's a good checkup, he is supposed to be activated for Monday's game. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> that would be amazing. And they could definitely use the uh, the offensive boost that he might provide. As you mentioned, the team stats for you know pitching and batting for the Pirates. As well as the Pirates get on base, Cleveland is the opposite. <laughs> Their team on base percentage right now at this point in the season is 298. Ooh. Yikes. They're hitting 234 as a team. Now, let me let me also say, though, their team on base is 298, but they've yeah. also been playing guys like Colin Cowgill on a, on a yeah. regular basis. This is true. So that might have something to do with it. <clears throat> I was kind of also worrying, and this may allude to the competition they face pitching-wise, too. They have a 25.5% K percentage so far this season. Oh, wow. That's t- like their team K percentage? Yeah, I think it's fourth in the league. Believe. Fourth highest. I mean, Fair. they've been, like I mentioned, like, Jason Kipnis is probably very thankful now to finally start seeing right-handed pitchers because they got bombarded with lefties to begin the season. Yeah. Between Boston, Tampa, White Sox just recently. It's it's nuts. So, Bailey can come back anytime soon. It'll be great. If Brantley comes back too, suddenly their outfield is a thousand times better than it was to start the year. Yeah, you know they'll have they'll have Naquin in center. Who's That's the, I wonder about that? Like, if Brantley comes back, is Naquin the one that's out, or does he the one that stays? I uh, Naquin's I mean, performed he's admir- yeah, he's performed admirably. In his, I think he's had like twenty five or thirty 
um, played appearances so far. And he's hitting like 300. Yeah, 25 played appearances. He's hitting 320. Um, he does not have a walk yet this season. He struck out seven times. But he's playing, you know, solid, <clears throat> respectable defense. He's, you know, been late substitution in the game defensively. He started a few games against right-hand pitchers. I think he's more than held his own so far. But you look at the roster construction, you, you can't see Rajay Davis going anywhere. Marlon Bird, that veteran, he started to get hot recently. So I can't see him going anywhere. Ah, I always forget about Marlon Bird. They have Marlon Bird now. Yeah. Chisholm Hall's back, so he's not going anywhere. And Jose Super Utility Ramirez, who I love, he's not going anywhere. Yeah, so actually maybe Naquin is the odd man out, huh? So I think Naquin might be the odd man out, unfortunately. Unless they, you know, take someone out of their bullpen, which I can't see them doing because their bullpen now has been atrocious too. Right. Yeah, and Tito loves those deep bullpens. Yeah. So it's something to, to watch. I really hope that Naquin does not get sent down, but at the same time, if he's not going to get regularly at-bats, he might as well get him in Columbus. Right, yeah. He needs consistent at-bats, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, f- I always forget about Marlon Bird. You guys signed him. Yeah. He's been hitting pretty well recently, so I'm happy with that. Uh, the rotation has been uh, a bit unlucky or in flux. Their team ERA is 3.92. Their XFIP is better at 3.75, so... Yeah, you know... <clears throat> not bad. They're... And we, we were talking about this a little bit because I have Corey Kluber on. I have a, quite a few shares of Corey Kluber on fantasy teams. And Kluber is kind of being Klubered to death, just like he was at the beginning of last year, where mm-hmm. he's not pitching like lights out, but he's not pitching as poorly as his numbers are saying. Like the other the other day, they were playing in a day game. Right. And Rajai Davis lost two fly balls in the sun. Mm-hmm. That should have been easy. They should have been easy outs. And instead, that goes on Corey Kluber's ledger. Right. And his ERA right now is 6.16, but his XFIP is 3.56. Right. That's I a mean, big difference. Yeah, it's a huge difference. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know what I mean? So, like, and he, he's striking out guys, right? Like, his, yep. his Ks are fine. Yep. 9, 9.0 Ks per 9. So, I mean, that, that should normalize here pretty quickly but you know it's kind of like last year like last year the problem was they had awful infield defense and yeah. it, you know like they were trying to figure out like can jose ramirez play shortstop and he was getting bled to death by ground balls that snuck through at shortstop that if francisco lindor had been up it probably they would have been outs and right you know and so now this year we're getting like two fly balls that should have been caught and they should have been outs and instead they are earned runs that go on his ledger like I don't know. It's it's very frustrating as from a fantasy perspective, it's very frustrating because he really should be performing a lot better. And, you know, from a from obviously a fan's perspective, it's very frustrating because Corey Kluber is not a, you know, anywhere close to a six ERA caliber pitcher. Right. And Kluber also suffered last year from one of the worst run support, you know, margins in all baseball, too. Yeah. I mean, most of his starts, he had to go out there and allow <laughs> zero or one run to get a win, <laughs> which is that's just almost impossible. Even for the clue bot. It will be interesting to note and watch going forward. Uh, Trevor Bauer has had um, 
some marginal success, I would say, coming out of the bullpen. What's interesting is Josh Tomlin has pitched pretty effectively so far. So it seems like his spot rotation is <clears throat> solid right now. But Cody Anderson, who we recall for Tribe fans out there, was announced as the fourth starter. He has struggled to begin the year. So I'm curious to see if he continues to struggle. And if he does continue to struggle still, they move him to the bullpen. They send him back to Columbus. Does Bauer get another chance in the bull- in the rotation? Something to keep an eye on. Yeah, Bauer Bauer's such an interesting... I mean, he's just an interesting person, generally speaking. But he's an interesting case, I guess, statistically. Um, He's thrown eight innings out of the bullpen. I mean, he's, strike, he's striking out guys. Right. Like the, the Ks are there. Um, he's stranding runners. I think he's he's given up what one home run maybe or two home one or two home runs. I know he's he's given up at least one yeah one home run. So he's given up one home run out of the bullpen. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's still walking to me, guys though. Right, and that's what you know. His walks are at four and a half per nine. Yep. So like he's improving in some like, you know, he's striking out a ton of guys. He's stranding a ton of guys. You know, he's getting ground balls at a forty percent clip. But then he's like, he's walking more people than usual. You would think, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's such just a, such an interesting pitcher. It's tough to get a good feel for, you know, what areas does he need to improve on or why does he struggle in certain areas? Yeah, my preference is that he remains in the bullpen. They'll, they'll work on those details. Yeah, instead of coming out and giving up like <clears throat> six, six earned runs in four innings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, record-wise... The Indians are 7-7, seven and seven, which is fourth right now in the American League Central. But Tribe fans should be happy that we're playing 500 baseball, considering that last year they finished April 7-14. and 14. Yeah. So we've already, ma- we've already matched the win total from last season, which is good. <laughs> and then the last thing of note that I mentioned here and discuss a bit is, uh, just as John Jason has been used very effectively as leadoff hitter for the Pirates, last night Tito after spending the last two seasons experimenting with this idea in spring training, decided to go ahead and back Carlos Santana leadoff against Justin Verlander. And old Carlos put a charge on one in his first at-bat in the game yesterday, hitting a home run off Verlander. Oh, I love it. So how do you feel about this decision, Mr. I Burdick? love it. Oh, it's I, it's absolutely phenomenal. It's what, it's what... We knew that this should have been happening like 10 years ago, and... I always bring up this point, but I remember there was a point when Dusty Baker was managing the Reds and uh, he had Adam Dunn and they were talking about like it, it had been talked about, I guess, batting Adam Dunn leadoff because Adam Dunn was like an on base monster. Adam Dunn was on base like 40 percent of the time. But, you know, Adam Dunn was that like traditional three outcome player where it was either going to be a walk, a strikeout or a home run. And at the time, people recognized the value of a guy who gets on base at a, at a high percentage. But, like, Dusty Baker just could not bring himself to do it because of the profile of Adam Dunn, I think. And even though Adam Dunn was going to get on base more than, you know, Zach Cozart or whatever guy you were going to bat leadoff, he just he couldn't bring himself to do it. And that's, you know, that's where we're getting to now, where people are recognizing John Jaso is not fast, but he's a good base runner, and he's going to get on base. And that's what you need in front of Andrew McCutcheon. Like... Does it matter if John Jaso can score from first on a double in the gap? 
like not really when you factor in that he's going to be on base, you know, 36% of the time. Um, so, and I, I think the same thing with, with Carlos Santana, like you look at Carlos Santana and he walks nearly as much as he strikes out his on base percentage. Um, you know, like he's getting on base this season at a, well, his on base percentage is a little down now, but yeah, three of five right now to start the year. But you know, he's a career on base percentage guy. Like he gets on base at like a three sixty clip. Mm-hmm. So if there's like the one skill that you want to exploit from Carlos Santana, it's probably that he gets on base. And he actually grades out a look as a decent base runner too. Yeah, which is nice. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he's yeah, he's one of those like he'll have random stolen bases during the season and you're like, "Oh, Carlos Santana stole a base." Like, yeah, last year he had 11 of them actually. Yeah. Like that's that's kind of wild. Um I so I love the move. I think it's I think it's smart managing. I think the Indians will reap the benefits again over the course of the season. Like it's easy to look at his, you know, 305 on base percentage through his first 60 plate appearances and be critical of it, but at the end of the season it's going to be right there at 360 again. Um, and I, I think, you, you know, see this being a short term experiment or you think they're going to give this, this, uh, lap a chance to, uh, to be more permanent. I think as soon as I read that tweet that he was batting lead off, I, the first thought I had was finally like Tito's caught on to what this lineup should be constructed. Like, um, you know, with, for the last couple years, we've complained on this podcast, you know, with the pirates lineup that they would constantly bat Neil Walker, like fifth or sixth. And then they'd have Jordy Mercer hitting second. Right. Like, come on, man. Like Neil Walker gets on base way more than Jordy Mercer and you're hit, you're burying him in the lineup. <laughs> like it, that needs to be the other way around. Um, and, and I, I think teams are finally, you have people in the front office that are able to communicate to the managers. Like, look, we can show you statistically that this is, the smart thing to do. And I think, I think managers are kind of catching on to it. And over the course of the season, does it really make that much of a difference? Probably not, but could it make a difference between one or two wins? Yeah, it could. And, you know, as you saw last year, like one or two wins can make a huge, huge difference in how your season plays out. So that's right. I think it's a brilliant move by Tito. I love Carlos Santana hitting leadoff. You'll see, I think a lot of people who don't understand statistics in baseball, complain about it oh you know how's it going to drive in runs da, da 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 like you're not worried about rbis you're going to be worried about how many runs is he scoring and and i think i think this is a great chance for the indians to improve their lineup and you know maybe snipe one or two extra wins that they might not have had uh with someone with a lower on base percentage leading off uh finally i'll conclude with this is a scary stat to share uh kluber is on the mound today on the bump I guess the Tigers at 105. Uh, Miguel Cabrera hits 571 against Kluber. No. Oh. He is 20 for 35 with five home runs, 10 RBIs, and a 1.652 OPS. Jeez. I'm actually I'm going to my phone right now and I am picking Miguel Cabrera for my beat the street. <laughs> Yeah. I I'm literally here. I'm pulling up my beat the streak app right now. That's cr- what? Wait, what was what were the splits for Miguel Cabrera again? Uh, hitting five seventy one 
against Kluber. 571. Yeah, 20 for 35, I think that's what I just read. Thanks to uh, Jordan Bastian of MLB.com. That's so... No. Here, I, I just pulled it up on the MLB uh, Beat the Streak app. Mm-hmm. Versus Corey Kluber. Oh, this is 2012 to 2016. 2012 to 2016 versus Corey Kluber. 20 for 34. 588. Well, there you go. <clears throat> yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, I'll pick Miguel Cabrera today. <laughs> All right. That's crazy. Thank you for that fun fact. If oh, I uh, if I continue my hitting streak today on the, the shoulders of Miguel Cabrera, I will make sure to give you credit for that. Uh, Clint Frazier <laughs> and Bradley Zimmer are off to pretty good starts for the Akron Rubber Ducks. Through yeah. 14, through 14 games each, they are slugging 500. Each of them are. Akron's tearing it up, too. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. We just... Uh, I'm so excited for when Akron comes to... They don't come to Erie, I think, until the end of June. Yeah, it's like late in the season that, that yeah. we don't have a home series against them. So hopefully Frazier's still... <laughs> hopefully Frazier's still there. Otherwise, we're off to Columbus. Yeah. <laughs> um. Do you want to do you want to use that to transition to the Seawolves? We want to talk about the Seawolves yeah. now. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Seawolves. Give a quick Seawolves shout out. Um, the Seawolves are currently seven and eight, so they're three games behind the aforementioned Akron. Uh, in the, <laughs> I always feel dumb saying this, but they play in the Eastern League Western Division, which is like a it's a weird combination of words they have to put together. Uh, but the uh, the Seawolves are actually being led by, uh, can we call him a friend of the podcast? Maybe. Tyler uh, Tyler Bortnick, maybe future friend of the podcast. future friend of the podcast. Tyler Bortnick leads the team with three home runs uh, and ten RBI. Um, he's an infielder. I think does he bounce around the entire infield or does he play? He has been playing third base the whole season until I believe yesterday he played second base and actually had an appearance in left field too. Okay, okay. So yeah, he's bouncing around the uh, the entire field, not just the uh, infield. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tyler Bortnick off to a great start. We have the, uh, green brothers, Austin and Dean, not literally brothers, but, uh, <laughs> they're off to a pretty solid start, um, as well. And <clears throat> Erie will be on the road this weekend against Binghamton before they head to Altoona. So they'll be playing Binghamton. Um, wait, let me make sure I have this calendar correct here. Cause so they'll be playing Binghamton. They'll head to Altoona on Monday. And then next, they'll, then they'll be off Thursday. Then next Friday, they'll go to Trenton. Or Trenton will come to Erie. So they'll be home right. after that. And then they'll have a home series against Altoona starting that Monday. So Monday, May 2nd, they start a home four-game home series against Altoona. Buck night. Yep. So uh, Buck night, you get to come watch the curve play. Uh, you get to watch, hopefully... Uh, actually, and I should have checked that before today's podcast, but um, hopefully Austin Meadows will be uh, back and ready to go for uh, Altoona by that series. But I guess I don't know how much uh, longer he has to go where he's still going to be on the shelf. So I'll have to take a look at that and see if he's going to be back. Um, I'll get out there sometime next week, Meadows says. So, yeah, he uh, he could be back for that series, hopefully. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch him. Yeah, Meadows, you know, it'd be kind of disappointing to miss Meadows on that um, first stretch through because uh, Altoona doesn't come back until June or July, maybe? 
So, yeah, if you don't get to see him, then you're, you're going to have to wait until June 6th before you can see him again. And I think that's it. That's going to wrap us up. Anything else for the Seawolves that we want to talk about? No, I think so. I think we're all good. All right. Good show today, Bob. That was fun. Very fun. All right. Well, we're going to thank our listeners and ask if you're listening to us on iTunes that you give us a rate and review. You guys have been awesome with the rate and reviews, so please keep them up. Uh, we're recording fairly consistently. I was on the DL last week with a cold, so we didn't uh, have a chance to record last week, but we're back to a regular recording schedule. In the meantime, if you want to check us out on the web, you can do so at www.tsmbaseball.com. You can email us, tristatebb at tsmbaseball.com. You can follow us on the Twitter at tristatebb, and you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash tsmbaseball. So for Bob Finkbinder, this is Andy Burdick, and we look forward to talking to you soon. The only ball I've ever gotten out of game, my wife got for me. Oh, there you go.